1: Libby is hoping to return later this week. And as always, it's nice to have you along with me and our Zoomer squad. I thought we'd start by talking about the incredible Willie Nelson, who at just shy of his 90th birthday has won two more Grammys. Here's a snippet from his latest CD, A Beautiful Time, which has won the award for Best Country Album at the Grammys.
2: I only saw you once And that was a long,
3: long time ago probably don't
1: remember. Willie released A Beautiful Time in April of last year, the same day as his 89th birthday. Nelson's take on Billy Joe Shaver's Live Forever from a tribute compilation of the same name won him the Grammy for Best Country Solo Performance. Let's introduce the Zoomer squad now to talk about Willie and uh, other iconic Zoomers who did well last night at the Grammys. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and vice. Vice President here at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Peter's in the studio. Bill and David on the phones. Hello to all of you.
4: Hi, Jane. Hi, Hi Jane. everyone. Hey, guys.
1: Peter, I'll start with you. Uh, how about Willie Nelson? About Willie
4: Nelson? <laughs> <laughs> he has voice still, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, like it's. I, I don't know how much of that is. Um, you know, studioed up, but, uh, you know, on, on that cut, it sounds like he can still sing as, as he always did. And, uh, and 89 winning a Grammy, it's just unbelievable. I, you know, uh, he, there were other older winners. Ozzy Osbourne won as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I remember going to see him or trying to go to see him when I was, um, you yeah, know, I was in high school. And uh, I, I never thought he'd be around like 50 years later, it's, right? Yeah, it's, or 60 years later, even. Like it, it just these guys just keep going, and they they keep winning Grammys. It's amazing.
1: Peter, almost a superhuman kind of person, Willie Nelson yeah. is, or, or uh, Bill, rather.
4: Yeah, certainly. And uh,
5: by the way, full disclosure: I am a huge country fan and a fan of Willie Nelson's. And this is just another great uh, album. Uh, even if he is 89 years old, it competes with anything that's uh, out there. And I love some of the, the songs and the, and the topics that he's, uh, uh, covering. Uh, you know, uh, I, I love I Don't Go to Funerals, which fits very much <laughs> with, with my point of view and, and really well, uh, done in and the and, and much of the themes of, of, uh, uh, these songs are, uh, talking about living the best you can and, and, uh, as uh, as our President Mosheimer always says, that the best way to keep going is to keep going. And that's what Willie's singing about. And that's what he's doing. He's just a, a marvelous uh, example to CART members.
1: Well, David, I mean, Willie Nelson's example to all of us that if you love what you're doing, just keep on doing it is um, it's so heartening. Right. And gives us all so much to look forward to.
3: Absolutely. And he's, uh, you know, you mentioned other, uh, I don't know if it's a crossover of country music or uh, the popularity of the genre, or maybe a, uh, reaction against some other music trends, but I would note Bonnie Raitt as yes. well. Who's yep. uh almost somebody I think she's 64. 73. And
1: 73. I, I, I
3: said, I, I, my, there goes my math. 74. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say 74. She's yeah. 73. And, uh, a fantastic uh career and a fantastic talent. And even though it's got nothing to do with the, 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 the Grammys, coincidentally, um, you know, is Yellowstone <laughs> a significant influence in the background here? Is there kind of a more interest in that whole uh ethos and uh so I, I say this as a Yellowstone fan.
1: So I, see. I, I have yes, to throw I, that into the mix. I've heard it is very good and that we should watch it. <laughs> we should watch it. And it's
3: very much this whole uh, this whole culture.
1: Yeah.
3: So, uh, but good for Willie. I've, like Bill, I've been, an, uh, I'm a bit of a country, maybe a little bit more to work bluegrass myself. But um, Willie, uh, you know, I could probably name all of his major hits, Bill and I could probably have a good uh, session just name dropping some of those great songs and there he still is.
1: Yeah, and there was a picture uh, I was when I was just reading a little bit about him this morning, a picture from last August, and he looks exactly the same as he's always looked with yeah. his braids and his bandana. He he looks well. And, and obviously, he's about, yeah.
3: luckily he's got the kind of voice that you wouldn't know much difference, you know, at, at ninety than at sixty or 60. Right. He, he's got that kind of gravelly, uh, you know, twangy thing. And so it's maybe maybe it's easier for him to yeah. sustain that than a, maybe an opera singer would find, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, good point. All right, let's switch topics uh, with our Zoomer squad and talk about long-term care. We learned uh, late last week the governing Ford PCs are proposing to increase fines for long-term care homes that don't have air conditioning in every resident's room. A posting to the province Regulatory Registry proposes to increase the fine to a maximum of $25,000 for nursing homes that don't meet the requirements. Until now, that top fine was $1,100. A Bill, hard to believe that <laughs> when this legislation passed in 2021 requiring AC in all residence rooms by last June, there were still like 100 homes last year in Ontario that did not have AC during the summer in the rooms.
5: Yeah, it, it, it is, and it's a topic that CARP has been uh, uh, talking about uh, for for years, uh, and we were pleased to see the legislation come in uh, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's not being enforced, or, and not to the extent that the government wants it to be. So what does that uh, mean to us? How many uh, don't have it? Is 25,000 enough? And and also, you know, a little bit of a concern. One of the things CARP has been asking for is more enforcement of regulations. And although uh, air conditioning is important, it kind of is the low-hanging uh, fruit. What about the regulations around all the other re- requirements and enforcing them? Is our uh, air conditioners the only thing that's not uh, happening that should be in long there? Care homes at the moment. I don't think so.
1: You don't think so. You don't know so. What what information do you have on that bill? Well,
5: we're we're still getting uh, we're still getting uh, uh, complaints and reports from our our members that uh, uh, the regulations uh, are not being in, in, enforced. That uh, uh, there, although the. The uh, number of inspectors has been uh, has been increased. So, uh, and it appears that the on-site inspections are happening more regularly now. We're not hearing a lot about uh, what they're what they're finding. And does this announcement mean the one thing they found is the lack of? Uh, of air conditioning, or what? What else are they finding? Right. And is this the most important one? Uh,
1: and this is a good time to put that, or uh, put this out to our Zoomer Radio listeners. If you have experience with a loved one in a nursing home uh was air conditioning an issue last year in keeping your loved one at at a proper temperature when it's 30 plus degrees outside uh anything else that you've noticed that looks suspect to you that should be fixed by now 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-744-740 uh peter your thoughts on uh upping the fines uh, on homes that don't have air conditioning, yeah, yeah.
4: I, I think it's a good idea. i mean, um i I'm not sure what's keeping them from doing it. i I know they said uh, last year that you know some of these old buildings needed retrofit um, you know, renovations and stuff like that to to get the air conditioning in. But now there's no excuse like they they have to do it immediately. And um you know, you know the it's not only for the patients but it's for the families visiting, it's for the workers there. It's just it, it, it. If you don't have heat, um, everyone's miserable. The patient, the resident is miserable, and the family doesn't want to come. You know, because right. it's 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 too hot. So so you have to get this in there. And uh, I twenty five thousand. You know, maybe that'll wake them up.
1: At the moment, uh, we heard from the long-term care minister's spokesperson that 591 of 627 long-term care homes are in compliance with the law, but that means that 36 long-term care homes still don't have air conditioning in residents' rooms. And we all know, Bill, like say you go to work and the air conditioning is on the fritz for one day, you know how much we all suffer for seven or eight hours in an environment where there's no air conditioning. You can't even imagine what these elderly and frail people are having to endure.
5: No, ab- absolutely uh, an issue, and as Peter says, not just for the residents, uh, but for the staff and everyone else uh, involved uh, in it. But uh, and and uh, so so very important, of course, not to uh, not to suggest it's uh, not, but uh, wondering. Uh, Still, if this, you know, are we going to get reports on the other deficiencies? And uh, uh, maybe some of your uh, listeners will phone in and tell us about those.
1: I do want to go around the table and ask you about Paul Calandra's comments last week about uh, the standards being so high in Ontario long term care homes that he doesn't want to water them down with the proposed federal guidelines. I'll get your takes on that in a second. First, though, Clay in Ajax, you have a comment. Hi, Gene. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Go ahead.
3: I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Supposedly, the inspectors are actually inspecting instead of doing the over-the-phone inspections. I'm curious. Do you remember uh, Kathleen Wynn ordered all the nursing homes to have the sprinkler systems put in? I just wonder how they're doing with that.
1: Oh, good question. Thank you, Clay. Uh, Bill, are you up on that information?
5: No, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm not. We were told that the, at the time that uh, the uh, Ontario Fire Marshal was uh, was inspecting all the the homes, and any that uh, didn't have adequate fire protection were going to be uh, were going to be closed down. We haven't heard of that happening recently. So, but whether or not not that includes sprinkler systems or not, uh, I've seen no reports.
1: Uh, David, uh, have you got any information on that before we move along? I don't but I do
3: wanna comment that the twenty five thousand dollar fine, I don't even know what that means because if it's cheaper to pay the fine than put in the system, um, you know, what are the what are the comebacks other than the fine? I'd be more impressed if it was twenty five thousand dollars a day or a Right, week.
1: right. Yeah, the parameters around the twenty five thousand yeah, dollars. What dollar does fines? it
3: even mean? You know, they can yeah. make a cold blooded we're down to thirty six homes, so they're clearly I mean they could make a cold-blooded decision to pay the fine and because it might cost more than twenty-five thousand
1: to put the units in. Yeah. And when so would what they you really accomplish? Yeah. When would they be fined again? Exactly. When would they be fined again? That the devil's always in the details, I'm afraid. Yeah, a good point. Uh it's the Zoomer squad here with Jane for Libby, David Kravitz there, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Muggridge. Uh, last week, Paul Calandra, our long-term care minister, talked about the high standards in Ontario nursing homes and that he did not want them washed. Her down by what's been called for in the new federal guidelines. Um, we laughed in the newsroom at that comment. I'm sure many long term care advocates out there had a good laugh about that as well. Peter, laughing because it's 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 such a joke.
4: Yeah, it's it seems like a joke, and it seems like pure politicking. You know, um, you know, uh, sort of deflect, you know, criticize the federal standards and and hide the fact that the provincial standards are. Either non-existent or unenforceable. So, um, yeah, and 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 why would he say watered down? Because I thought the standards bill—you can back me up on this—I I thought the standards were quite adequate or even stronger than than you would uh, expect it.
5: Yes, I agree, Peter. They uh, they they are, and uh, not not as strong in in a few areas as we would like. But frankly, if those standards can be adopted across the country, including here in Ontario, uh, then all the residents of long-term care are going to be much uh, much better off. So uh, it's a really good start. And now it is up to the provinces to, they're only recommended. So it's up to the provinces to uh, put them into effect and to uh, uh, regulate them and enforce and, and them. And uh, that seems to be what the, the minister is suggesting uh, he's not excited about doing it on in Ontario, and that's going to be a real concern for CART
1: members. This was certainly a topic of conversation during Free for All Friday when Marissa was in on Friday for Libby. A lot of people were calling in and saying this whole idea of four hours of care, which the Ontario PCs are promising by twenty twenty five, and higher wages for PSWs. Uh, that may be the plan but we're certainly a couple of years away from that david
3: well it's true i mean but you see the entire healthcare system consists of policies or objectives that are very good on paper that can't be executed or aren't being executed that's the problem the problem isn't so much that the the performance standards or the goals are are in themselves terrible it's that the powers that be, and this is a coast to coast problem of all political parties, they're not executing against their own self-proclaimed standards, whether it's wait times, whether it's hallway medicine, whether it's diagnostics, whether it's the number of beds or uh, hallway medicine, and now, you know, long-term care homes. That's number one. Number two, if you're already exceeding the federal standards, not saying they are, but if he thinks the minister thinks they are, Why does a new federal standard mean you're watering anything down? You can continue to exceed, go your merry way and say we're doing even better than the feds recommended. What's wrong with that? Who's telling you? The Feds aren't saying, by the way, if you're providing more than this, we want you to cut back. No. They're not saying we want you to reduce what you're doing. If their standard, if you're exceeding their standards, good for you. But uh, it's a, it's a just posturing, I'm afraid.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: A Bill, final comment from you on long-term care uh, for this week before we change topics.
5: Well, I just I really agree with uh, David. And if they really are sincere in saying that there are regulations in Ontario that are better than the recommended standards, then list those out for us. Let us see what they are. We do know that in many areas, like uh, hours of care per day, day, many of the smaller provinces are already reaching that. Why can't Ontario
6: do it? You
1: know, Zeev Hattie, our producer, reaches out uh, fairly regularly to the cabinet ministers in the Ford government, and they will. They just don't want to come on. Mm. They don't want to come on. Fight back. I, I don't know. You know, if there's nothing to hide, or their standards are so high. Why don't they come on and talk about them? We would love to chat with Paul Calandra at some point. <laughs> the question
3: answers itself, Jane. Yes,
1: yes. It's rhetorical, yes. Uh, numbers yes. to call, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to do a bit of a setup now for tomorrow's health care funding summit in Ottawa among the premiers, the territorial leaders, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, his health minister, Jean Yves Duclos. Uh, Peter, you know, at the moment, there seems to be a lot of jockeying for more money, a higher percentage of funding for the provinces. But really, we need solutions to the staffing challenge, and that could involve more money. Um, but we need, they, there needs to be that communication, right? And what we need, what we want, and what the federal government can provide.
4: Yeah, because. Um... Um, you know, over the last few years, the, uh, the 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 cracks in the system have become so evident. You know, um, you know, um, ER closures and uh, lack of doctors and nursing shortages, and just the list goes on and on and on. And it's not like um, like you can throw money at it and these problems will go away. These, these are systemic problems that mm-hmm. need to, you need to you need to think about them. How to how can we how can we figure out you know, how to deliver care that's not only, you know, um, affordable, but it's also efficient and fair and um, it addresses all these issues that the health, that have cropped up in the healthcare system in the last few years. So um, it's not just a question of writing checks to the provinces and the provinces promising to provide data back. It's, it's a question of um, let's, let's think this through, you know. We have an opportunity here to repair something good and let's do it right. And um, so that, that'll that be interesting to see whether that uh, kind of spirit is in place on uh, Tuesday when they meet.
1: David, what are you expecting? What would you like to see?
3: Well, I think there's a couple of, uh, there's a little subtext here that I find a little bit of encouragement from. First of all, DuClos said in an interview on, I think, CBC that they've got to start doing things differently. Um, so it wasn't just a matter of finding a, a monetary formula. And, uh, uh, in the interview, he acknowledged agreeing with, I think it's, uh, I think it's New Brunswick, though you could tell me Higgs. I think he's the New Brunswick guy who said that he's seeing a different climate now in these discussions, um, because of public opinion. So they are aware now, or they claim to be aware, that people are just losing patience with the whole thing, and they want radical changes. And at the same time, I see in the paper today a new poll out um, that 60% of Canadians are in favor of private delivery of public publicly funded health care, 60% also in favor of private Healthcare for those that can pay, which is a massive change in attitude. I'm not necessarily advocating that one way or the other yet, but uh, everybody's wants new methods and new um, systems and new approaches, um, not just more money. And uh, so they may be meeting officially on the topic of more money, but I think there's a subtext here that says, how do we actually change the system so it right. can operate properly?
1: Right. Um, Bill, your thoughts from CARP members, what people are saying about this summit? Yeah, well, they're agreeing
5: with both uh, Peter and and uh, David. It's not uh, all about money. There are some uh, huge cracks in the system that have to be filled before anything else can be delivered. And this is where they've got to cooperate and take action uh, rather than just uh, talking about money. The basic one is. Uh, is staffing at all levels uh, right from uh, basic care up to uh doctors and and specialists they we we have to uh, have the provinces work uh, together uh ontario has uh uh proven uh, some of the leads so far by saying they're going to allow doctors from ever, anywhere in Canada to practice in Ontario the other provinces have to do the same thing we have to take down those provincial uh, barriers so there there uh, there has to be cooperation among the provinces before any money from Ottawa is really going to make any uh, difference because as soon as Ottawa puts uh, uh puts demands on the money and criteria to the money then the uh provinces object because they are the ones who are ultimately responsible for delivering healthcare so uh i'm i'm expecting that uh, tomorrow we may hear a lot about uh, more dollars and and even real allocation of dollars what i'm afraid we won't hear is how we're going to be and how they are going to be spent in a way that's going to be most effective in improving an already very sick system.
1: Well, we certainly have a lot of expertise around this table, so let me all let me ask you all this. How do we address the biggest issue which is a staff shortage and pay these healthcare workers, primarily nurses, enough to attract more people to become nurses in Ontario and Canada, Peter?
4: Well, um I you know I don't know the answer to that Jane but um I know in the states they offer bonuses to nurses to get them to relocate to their state they'll pay them moving expenses give them a salary bump they'll do educational free education you know upgrading and and that sort of thing they they sort of they they sort of uh you know recruit them aggressively and 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 I guess that's going to have to happen here we're going to have to start uh, aggressive recruiting and not just passively hope people apply uh, we're going to have to go and find them right and that's that's how we're going to get more nurses i think that's the only way it's a competition out there and we're going to have to up our game to get them david i think it's multiple
3: things i don't think there's an answer i agree with peter but there's also such issues as um streamlining approval of certification of people who have been trained in other jurisdictions um, who may already be here with qualifications. Um, um, I think also that you're going to see them leveraging more um, uh, telehealth and other tech solutions so that people in areas where there is enough people can maybe offer remote services or virtual services. It's going to be an all-of-the-above thing. It's not going to be any one thing, but they are getting uh, serious about it. And again, going back to Minister Duclos, he did comment on that in his interview that, you know, some provinces may want to uh, train more, some provinces may want to loosen up their regulatory things. they going to be a combination of a, a full court press. No one solution is going to solve the whole thing.
1: Bill, final comments from you
5: number of areas that they uh, could do something about. Uh, uh, First of all, uh, when we talk about foreign-trained doctors, many of those doctors are Canadians who had to go overseas because they couldn't get training in Canada. So what they need to do is, A, make it easier for those Canadians to return to Canada, many of whom want to, and and, and have been trained in uh, countries with excellent systems. Uh, uh, Ireland is one that comes to mind where a lot of Canadians go, but they have to be able to uh, practice uh, quickly. And, uh, and we need to make sure that uh, there are enough Educating physicians. One of the problems that the universities tell us is they're not turning out more trained doctors because there aren't enough physicians in the system, the physician teachers, to teach the uh, uh, the, the necessary uh, numbers. So that's why the numbers are capped uh, uh, down. Nurses is another uh, problem. You know, uh, we we compete against that kind of uh, of. Um, Uh, recruiting that's done in the States because they recruit Canadian uh, graduates Mm -hmm. just the same way. We need to be able to compete with that and we need to be able to make the the nursing... uh, uh, system easier for people to, to get, uh, out of it. You know, a high percentage of Canadian trained nurses in countries in, in provinces other than Ontario fail the initial exam because it's based on an American exam, mm. not a strictly Canadian exam. And why that is, 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 uh, is a mystery to many uh, people, including the nursing heads of departments that I've, uh, uh, talk to. And finally, uh, PSWs and people at that uh, level, uh, we've got to continue and en- enlarge their recruiting and the, uh, uh, the uh, way we bring them into the country and keep them here so that we're able to have the, the numbers we need. Uh, so many different things that need to be done, and there doesn't seem to be much action on any of those at the moment.
1: Thank you, Zoomer Squad, for another important conversation.
3: Thank
5: you, Jane. Jane. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Jane.
1: Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. You can hear our Zoomer squad every Monday after the new news until 1230 on Fightback. Jane for Libby, and coming up next, what's up with that downed Chinese surveillance balloon? Our panel of experts discusses
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with libby's nimer on zoomer radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is looking forward to getting back later this week. It was all the talk over the weekend. The Chinese surveillance balloon that passed over the U.S. and apparently spent time in Canadian airspace late last week as well. According to U.S. President Joe Biden, it was ultimately shot down by the U.S. on Saturday when it was over the ocean and not over land. And the recovery of this balloon apparently still needs to take place. China's Foreign Ministry said on Friday the day before the shootdown that the balloon was for civilian meteorological and other scientific purposes And that it regrets that the airship strayed into U.S. airspace, adding it will continue to maintain communications with the United States to properly handle the unexpected situation. Joining us to discuss this international incident, Charles Burton, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and expert on Canada China relations, as well as Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China hello to you both
7: good afternoon good afternoon hi
1: charles hi, ha- Chuck. <laughs> yes say say your hellos to each other as well yeah i know you uh, <laughs> your colleagues uh, charles how significant was this incident and why
2: well i think it was enormously significant in the sense that it went so badly wrong for china i you, you know this this dirigible um, crossed from west coast to east coast stopping off along the way at a series of Critical military installations. I think that China did not expect it to become public. Um, I think that they maybe wanted to use it as a bargaining chip with um, uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who was scheduled to be in China actually right now. He had to cancel because of the um, enormous outcry at the violation of American sovereignty. And the, the upshot is that you know it's it's moved us closer and closer to to confrontation between china and the us uh which you know could lead to to a, an outbreak of military hostilities over the south china sea or over taiwan it's just sort of drip 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 mm-hmm. i think that chinese felt that they were in a position where they could do this sort of outrageous thing you know sending a surveillance device across the united states that people walking their dogs on the ground could look up and see, look, the Chinese have got their surveillance device looking at me kind of thing. And I think they've grossly miscalculated the strength of their position and the weakness and indecisiveness of the U.S. And unfortunately, because it led to Mr. Blinken canceling his trip to China, the opportunity to come up with some sort of resolution or some mechanisms to ratchet down tensions and avoid misunderstandings that could lead to military disaster have been... um, removed. So, you know, all in all, I think China really messed up on this one, and and I, I, I really feel very sorry that it's leading to more and more tensions between China and the U.S., which, of course, will impact on Canada as well.
1: Uh, Chuck, what are your thoughts on the significance of this incident?
7: Well, uh, the first thing I thought about was uh, is a psychological provocation. Mm-hmm. Basically, um there's nothing you cannot do with satellites and human intelligence on the ground, um, that a balloon cannot, uh, can do. So, so if it's, a, it is indeed a spy, um, sort of, uh, device, spying device, I think, uh, China didn't expect any results from it. It's just matter of publication. And the, the secondary benefit of it is from a uh, Chinese point of view is that it created a little bit of a havoc in the US government you know it created a lot of uh, attention between the US congress and and biden and, and and as a result this is a kind of a um, long range plan of uh, china and also, of course russia too to 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 weaken the uh, united states and its allies and tend to sort of claim uh, sort of superpower status
1: Okay, so where do we go from here? Uh now we we heard over the, we heard over the weekend from many experts that similar incidents have taken place in the past. Uh so Charles, why would we not have heard about similar incidents with similar devices?
2: Well, I think that, you know, most of them have been skirting the um the borders of countries not actually spending several days making a slow traverse, stopping at every military installation of interest along the way. So it's qualitatively a a different thing. But I do think that, as I said, I think China did not expect that it would become a matter of public record, but could be dealt with in negotiations with Blinken. I mean, the other issue really is, um, you, you know, if it had been a weather balloon gone wrong, and that would have been the mother of all weather balloons because the sensing equipment hanging from it is, you know, equivalent in size to two city buses. So it's one big machine. Um, why didn't Canada shoot it down when um, it was over uninhabited areas of the Arctic, Alberta and Saskatchewan? So it does call into question, you know, we get an unidentified unmanned a surveillance device coming into Canada with no explanation from China in advance that some mistake has been made. And uh, we just let it drift over into the United States where it heads for, a, for a, a nuclear ballistic missile facility in Montana as its first stop on this long trek through the States. I think the U.S. really will be wondering um, about Canadian capability and intention with regard to To China, because obviously, you know, to protect our sovereignty and security, we shouldn't allow unidentified um, surveillance uh, aircraft to to be freely entering our country without uh, without some consequences.
1: Charles, are you saying that the Canadians may have missed it, may not have seen it, may not have been aware of it?
2: I hope that that's not the case. But if it was the case, why didn't we act And if it is the case, then, you know, decades of underfunding of our defense is really exposing Canadian uh, sovereignty's weakness and threatening our security. I mean, it's all very well to expect the United States to be responsible for the security of Entire North America. But, you know, U.S. defense is really for the United States and Canada ought to be protecting our sovereignty ourselves. And therefore, I think, you know, we should have acted unilaterally to deal with this thing. And I'm sure the United States would have been only too happy to see it stopped in the Arctic rather than drifting down into... Their territory.
1: What about that, Chuck? Um, Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. Is it possible that there was were conversations going on behind the scenes between the Canadians and Americans to just monitor this balloon rather than uh, take it down while it was overland, even over the Arctic?
7: I, I like to believe that. Um, I, I think the uh, Canadians would have deferred to the U.S. Uh, and there must have been some conversation even when they spotted it over the Arctic. Um, the, the, the the thing that we need to keep in mind is that bl- balloons floating over uh, a country is not new. These spying, uh, are, are, uh, you know, China, I know, has sent balloons over the U.S. and North America for, for, for you know, at least the uh, last decade or so. Uh, and then certainly you can go back to the Cold War when uh, U.S., Frequently sent U two spy planes going to China and Russia and uh, doing surveillance. So, so this is nothing new. Um, What is new is that kind of the audacity of the Chinese government to blatantly provoke a Western reaction. You know, they're saying, "Here, try me. You know, you you can shoot it down if you want, but I can do this." And they're daring the U S. and Canada to to say. I'm I'm doing this supreme precision right now. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and this is sort of a, I, I'm Charles would know better than I do. This survey is sort of very historically significant because China likes to see themselves as the middle uh, the middle kingdom, you know, where everybody has to come and kowtow to them to the emperor. So they're in a sense flexing the muscle and saying, Hey, you know, I can do this what I want. You can shoot it down if you want, but you still have to kowtow to me. So this is something that I, I feel uh, is is China's attitude. I mean, they're not that stupid to think that they can do anything with a balloon, and certainly uh, to be able to shut down by somebody else.
1: Let me ask you both this. What was this balloon all about? What kind of surveillance? I mean, they said uh, it was for civilian, meteorological, and other scientific purposes. Uh, Charles I mean, it's all speculation until we get any information if we do get any information about what the balloon was all about. But what are your thoughts on that?
2: well, they are they are um recovering the sensing devices to see what their capabilities are. There may be some uh, Chinese devices which are able to pick up on signals that satellites cannot. It will be um, reported to senior members of the u s government, including some members of Congress, on Wednesday. And then the uh, the American um, military will be doing a full classified briefing of every member of Congress on the 15th of February to explain what happened and therefore what the U.S. ought to be doing in response. I would say that, you know, one would hope that the Canadian government would do a full classified briefing of, the, of all the members of the House of Commons, but uh, I think that's very unlikely. Our, mm. We haven't said very much about this, and I think that uh, China is noting that Canada is more or less passive in the face of uh, fairly serious Chinese provocation. Uh,
1: Chuck, what do you think about what was actually going on on this balloon?
7: I believe it's, uh, uh, it, 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 it is very likely a spy balloon, but I, I don't think they expected any results from it. They're, they're more or less saying, uh, I'm going to, uh, we're going to just test, test the waters and, uh, and, you know, as I said before, these things have been, have been sent to the North American airspace, uh, for, for a few years now. And it's not the first time that China, and somebody had said from the uh, Department of Defense that this is not the first time that China has sent balloons over. That this is something that's obviously very, very kind of, a, um, very kind of, uh, blatantly sort of violating our airspace.
1: I've just got a few more minutes left with Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China, as well as Charles Burton, senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute and expert on Canada-China relations. Charles, is this a one-way street here? Have the U.S. or Canada ever floated such uh, surveillance balloons into China?
2: Uh, I don't think that we're, we're doing that kind of surveillance. We have the satellites, well not us, but the United States does, and U.S. has some fairly sophisticated airplanes that skirt the China coast in international airspace. And, you know, we have a, we have a good method of picking up on what's going on in China. Um, and, but Chuck is right. I mean, these balloons have appeared, um, in, uh, Japan, um, Fiji, uh, you know, um, there's one currently in South America. But I think that, that this idea that Chuck brings up of China seeing itself as the middle kingdom, and that China will resume this position that China believes it, 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 it had in the past of being the dominant civilization on the planet in the face of a weak, indecisive and declining U.S. that this kind of thing of let's send a balloon across um, the United States and, and see them not dare to do anything about it and then send their secretary of state to come to China in a sort of supplicatory um, fashion is consistent with the Chinese um, leader's ideology with regard to China's future position in the world. Unfortunately, you know, it's just way out of sync with realistic geopolitical realities and and shows how far the Chinese leadership is from being a collaborative partner in a reciprocal relationship with other nations of the world based on a rules-based um, international order so it doesn't bode well you know there are just so many things which are suggesting that there's confrontation coming with china and one just prays that we can come up with some resolution that will restore uh, peace and continue to build global prosperity
1: so chuck do you think this counter productivity this counterproductivity by china was strategic just to be difficult yeah, very
7: very much so very yeah. much so yeah. i think this is uh you know, they they don't care. They are audacious enough to say, "Here, here it is." Um, you know, try try me uh, attitude. And I think this is sort of the flexing muscle. They're saying, "We're we number two superpower right now. Uh, we can do what we want." And then, and couple with this sort of middle kingdom, uh, having other people coming in and kowtow to them, Beijing, is is kind of the uh, arrogant. Attitude that China is uh, having right now under uh, Xi Jinping. So it's not surprising. Um, what is surprising is this: this is such a low-tech thing. Uh, but I think maybe that's the point. You know, they're basically sending a, a innocent-looking balloon over, and and dare you, and create all kinds of havoc. You know, we we had a CNN attention all weekend. You know, over this balloon, every every was panicking and and. Every, everybody's in this. So I think they have accomplished what they wanted to do.
1: And one final question, apart from sharing the intelligence uh, with uh, certain individuals in both the United States and Canada, once they get information about what was on this balloon, what moves, Charles, should the U.S. and Canada make now with regards to relations with China?
2: Well, I think that, you know, I, I, I absolutely agree with everything that Chuck has said. And I think the fact that these balloons have been able to come up into our territory and just uh, permitted to gather whatever information they can and, and then be directed back to China is uh, indicative that China is perceiving us as weak. So I think that we have no choice but to uh, engage in some return action to make it clear to China that this is unacceptable and they have to stop uh, infringing on our sovereignty in such a, a blatant and audacious way. And uh, I think that this will probably be reflected in more uh, military activity to enforce the um, the uh, um, international waters of the South China Sea and, and other maybe some military sanctions against the uh, Whoever we identify as being responsible for uh, sending that balloon um, into North America, you know, we, we just cannot sit idly by and allow China to continue to, to take more and more um, aggressive action to try and fulfill its overall program of what Mr. Xi calls the community of the common destiny of mankind, which mm-hmm. is a new China based global order. And so, you know, I don't think that this is going to end. Uh, today. I think once the information comes out next week, uh, we'll see the U.S. announcing some some response.
1: Okay, we will leave it there. Thank you both so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Great to speak with you. Bye, Dr. Char- Char-
1: Charles Burton is senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, expert on Canada-China relations. Chuck Kwan is with the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. It is Jane for Libby and coming up in the final segment of Fight Back here on Zoomer Radio. What happens to the historic trees at Osgoode Hall once the pause on cutting them down is lifted on Friday? We discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby will be back later this week. The historic trees at Osgood Hall will be left up until at least February 10th this Friday. But what happens After Friday, according to the Law Society of Ontario, the province's Superior Court has granted an interim injunction, which bars Metrolinx from chopping down the group of trees on the property until at least February 10th to make way for an Ontario line subway station. Saturday morning, if you haven't been following along, crews sanctioned by Metrolinx started cutting down the historic trees before the court could hear the injunction application that was launched to prevent their clearing. And then later on there was a pause issued by the superior court so what happens next joining us to discuss transit advocate steve monroe nice to talk with you steve hello thank you steve help us understand why all of this was literally happening at the last minute
6: well um Uh, The first point I should make is that this isn't just about the trees. It it suits Metrolinx to pitch it as, you know, it's five trees and what's the big issue. The larger issue is Osgoode Hall and the lands around it uh, as a historic site and as a piece of public space within downtown Toronto. Um, And also the degree to which Metrolinx... uh, Frankly does not deal with uh, public participation and consultation in good faith as evidenced by the uh, starting the clearing of the trees when they knew perfectly well there was going to be a court hearing later the same day. It's like it's the classic sort of developer come in in the middle of the night and demolish a building before you can uh, you can put protection legal protection in place so it this is a much bigger issue about metrolink's behavior than just five trees, having said that. Where the where the issue comes is the debate over where the main construction access to the new uh, uh, Osgood Station on the Ontario Line, which will be underneath the existing Osgood Station on the University Line, okay. where the major construction access will be, and MetroLink wants to put it on the northeast corner of Queen and University, uh, in the in what is now the park beside uh, Osgood Hall. Okay. And, of course, in order to do that, they want to cut down the trees. Now, they're, they're saying they have to do it now because they want to do an archaeological dig of the site to see if there's anything interesting there um, before they actually do the construction. And, and that would need to be out of the way before the, the actual station construction starts. So that's why they want to take down the trees now.
1: And you mentioned about the expropriation effort from that whole general area for this new subway station. What may they expropriate? I mean, you mentioned Osgood Hall. There's also Campbell House there. Like, what's going to stay and
6: what's going to go? What's going to stay? What's going to go? Well, that of course depends on how they eventually wind up designing to build the build station. They haven't expropriated Osgood Hall itself, okay. but they've expropriated a corner of the Osgood Hall property that was formerly owned by the Law Society of Ontario, who also own a good chunk of Osgood, the land Osgood Hall sits on. Um, and, uh, so they said, okay, it's our land. Now we can do with it what we want. And one of the things they want, they're doing is clearing the site to be their, their construction access for the new station entrance. One of the big debates is whether they need whether that has to be the place where the entrance is built, whether it needs to be as large, whether the construction access could be somewhere else making the the actual need for for, uh, the size of the excavation uh, on the northeast corner smaller. One of the things that's happening at the same time as the station's being rebuilt, um, Osgood Station is not currently accessible except via an elevator that's in the Opera Company building on the southeast corner, and so the uh, there there's a big accessibility requirement to add to the to the existing station as well as of course to get down to the new station on I the see. Ontario line which will be thirty meters underground and obviously needs escalators and elevators.
1: okay so what happens between now and Friday with regards to the trees to this land that the law Society of Ontario uh, claims as their own well um,
6: it's the, the the issue basically is whether. The Law Society uh, can make a credible argument to the court and, and of course, to links who is virtually has said, well, we can do whatever we like and is, you know, like sort of an inch away from saying it doesn't matter what the court does, you know, we're going to build it, um, if there can be a credible argument made for an alternative design shifting the location of the primary construction access uh, and the size of the excavation on the northeast corner so that the uh, the residual, you know, upgraded uh, entrance will fit into a uh, space that's outside of the Osgoode Hall lands.
1: So, who's gonna, who will make that proposal? What expertise is going to come forward in the next few days to provide well, that that's,
6: information? That's part of the problem. Is that yeah. uh, there has been a consultant's report that was only published on Friday afternoon, um, uh, mm-hmm. looking at various alternatives. Metrolinx treated that report as saying, yeah, the Osgoode Hall site is the way, where, the way we should go, and immediately proceeded to start clearing trees. There are all, there's at least one alternative location that's being considered. Um, and even within the consultant's report, I get the sense that the idea of moving the main construction access to some other location, such as what is now the secondary entrance proposed to the station on Simcoe Street, uh, which is one block west of University Avenue, um, uh, to, that 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 really hasn't received serious consideration. Okay. So the real the real problem will be whether MetroLink just basically says we're going to do it now, and you know we're bigger than you are, so you know thumbs their nose, or whether there is actually a um, a realistic look at alternatives. Having said that. Damage has already been done to the to the trees. They're, you know they're not all in their uh, in their original condition. So um, this is this is a situation where you know you can't put them back. The pieces of wood that are lying on the ground are right. are you know they're those are gone. Um, and it's uh, you know I would basically say that the MetroLink's are are sort of corporate vandals for moving in and taking those trees down. Trees down when they knew perfectly well that. Uh, there was a uh, legal hearing pending on the, on the site.
1: Right. Now, in terms of legal proceedings this week, uh, could the Ontario Superior Court justice who I- initiated this current pause, could
6: he extend it further into time? Well, there, there, is a, there is a provision for extension. Uh, the, the related issue, uh, I haven't seen the reasons for the judgment. With, I don't know whether they've been released this morning yet or not. Uh, and then the question will be whether Metrolinks will appeal that ruling to a higher court and attempt to get the injunction overturned.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for helping us understand what's going on there uh, at the corner of Queen and <laughs> University, right?
6: <laughs> yes, that is, yes.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. Great to You're talk with welcome. you, as always. Okay, transit advocate Steve Monroe. Jane for Libby, I will be back in tomorrow with our recovering politicians panel. Always a spicy conversation. Up next, the number ones at one, but first, Bob Comsick and the news.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.